It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 9th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi Senate is once again advancing legislation to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage. A leading Mississippi pediatrician hopes the House will give it a vote. Then, a new podcast focuses on a reform school for black children in Alabama, where they faced abuse and hard labor. Plus, a look at the Laurel Jones Black History Museum. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Senate bill that would extend postpartum Medicaid coverage from 60 days to a year is once again heading to the Mississippi House. A similar bill passed the chamber last year, but Republican Speaker of the House, Republican Philip Gunn would not hold a vote on it. This year, Dr. Anita Henderson is hoping for a different outcome. The immediate past president of the Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics says there is a coalition of support from medical associations in the state. And she tells our Lacey Alexander the votes are in the legislature if lawmakers get the chance to cast them. They have seen um, the importance of caring for mothers and improving maternal health, not only as a means of improving the health of women, which are um, obviously a vital part of our workforce and our, our community, but it also helps to improve the, the health of our babies. Our state, unfortunately, has the highest infant mortality rate in the country and the highest premature birth rate in the country. And our infant mortality rate is so high partly because of that premature birth rate. Prematurity is the leading cause of infant mortality in our state. So if we can provide mothers with care for 12 months after delivery, we are more likely to get them healthy. We are more likely to allow them to spread out pregnancies which lowers the rate of repeat preterm birth. And I think the Senate has understood that. They have understood the moral obligation, the economic impact of 12-month postpartum care. And that is why Senator Blackwell held hearings this past fall where a number of physicians from all different avenues and all different specialties both on the importance of 12-month postpartum care. So we're very appreciative of the Senate. Um, now we are asking 
Speaker Gunn um, to bring forth the 12-month postpartum bill in the House and allow his members to vote. We have spoken with uh, representatives throughout the state. There has been a lot of reporting on um, the way these representatives would vote. And we know that the majority of representatives, both Republican and Democrat, are in support of 12-month postpartum care. So we're asking Speaker Gunn to allow his members to vote on this bill. And as we know, last year, Speaker Gunn did the exact opposite of that. He was very opposed. He said he didn't really want to consider legislation or pass legislation that had anything to do or was remnant at all of expanding any kind of Medicaid. What do you hope has changed this year that will hopefully allow him to take a different approach this time? In the last year, we've seen a number of um, metrics worsen in our state. Our preterm birth rate has gone up um, in the last year, really in the last five years. It's gone from 13% up to a high of 15% this year. Um, We just recently had the maternal mortality report released. Um, that looked at maternal death from 2017 through 2019. And one of the recommendations in that report was for 12-month postpartum care as a way to improve the health of these mothers. Over the last year, um, this past fall, we also had the Medicaid Advisory Committee, which is made up of members that are appointed by the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker. That Medicaid Advisory Committee again recommended for 12-month postpartum care. They had previously recommended for that in 2017. They recommended that again this year. We have had a number of healthcare um, providers and healthcare organizations from the American College of OBGYN Mississippi chapter, the Mississippi chapter of pediatrics, Mississippi chapter of the American Medical Association, And on and on, every medical organization in our state has recommended 12-month postpartum care as a way to improve the health of moms and babies. We also know that the state of Mississippi right now is sitting on a $3.9 billion surplus. According to testimony from the Division of Medicaid this past fall, 12-month postpartum care would cost our state annually six to seven million dollars. So that is 0.18 percent of that surplus. That could potentially help over 20,000 women and babies in our state every year. And so we are hoping that Speaker Gunn will look at this issue from a moral standpoint, from an economic standpoint, um, and from a political Uh, standpoint in terms of the fact that the majority of Mississippians, the majority of his representatives are in favor of 12-month postpartum care. The law as it stands is, like you said, 60 days, two months. Uh, Tell me about some more medical conditions where a new mom would continue to need care after that 60-day period and thus some reasons why this should be expanded to a year. Women... um, after pregnancy, um, can suffer from cardiovascular events. Hypertensive disease of pregnancy um, occurs at a fourfold increased risk 
uh, and it causes a fourfold increased risk of chronic hypertension. So cardiovascular wellness and health is something that can be addressed in that 12-month postpartum time frame. Cardiovascular disease, cardiomyopathy, stroke, those are the leading causes of death for women in the postpartum period. The other issues that I see frequently are postpartum depression um, along with uh, postpartum diabetes that may be a result of gestational diabetes. Mothers who have asthma or any other chronic medical condition can continue to have that treated in the postpartum period. Um, Dr. Marty Tucker, who is an OB-GYN at um, University Medical Center, testified about the postpartum period. And in his testimony to the Senate Medicaid Committee, he reported that it may take up to a year for a woman's cardiovascular health and cardiovascular system to return to normal. So all we are asking our lawmakers and our legislators is to help those moms get to that one-year period, um, help those babies um, get to their first birthday uh, with an improved uh, ability for their moms to get health care. So if we care about babies in Mississippi, we need to care about the mothers who are generally their primary caregivers. Um, we just would encourage all Mississippians out there, um, moms, dads, grandparents, those who care about the women of our state, those who care about infant mortality and prevention of prematurity, we ask you just to contact your representative. Um, thank your senators who voted for this, but contact your representative. Contact Speaker Gunn's office. Let him know what your feelings are about 12-month postpartum care, about improving the health of um, moms and babies in Mississippi. Dr. Anita Henderson, pediatrician in the state of Mississippi, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us about this. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Coming up, a new podcast focuses on a reform school for black children in Alabama, where they faced abuse and hard labor. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-THE-NUMBER-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Just outside of Montgomery, Alabama, a school was founded more than 100 years ago with the goal of rehabilitating black children, but they faced abuse and were sentenced to hard labor. One survivor called it a slave camp. The new podcast, Unreformed, the story of Alabama's industrial school for Negro children, digs into this largely untold story and how Alabama's criminal legal system allowed it to happen. Gulf States Newsroom's Bobby Jean Missick sat down with the podcast host, Josie Duffy Rice. Thanks so much for speaking with me today, Josie. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk. So I wanted to talk about the origin of this school. Mount Meg's started with 
good intentions, it seems like. It was started by the daughter of an enslaved woman who meant for it to be a place to rehabilitate black children who had gotten in trouble with the law. And then when did things change for the worse? Yeah, that's exactly right. It started as kind of an alternative place for kids who were in trouble to go because otherwise they were just going to adult prison. And so it existed in its kind of better form at least for its first four years, from 1907 to 1911. And in 1911, it was sold to the state of Alabama. And that's when the goals of the school and the environment really started to shift. In the podcast, you know, we heard from adults who were held at the school, and so many of them are still carrying the scars from that experience, right? I want to play a clip with some of their voices. It been with me all of my life. I've never been able to get the hardest part of that out of my life. I was told in Mount Meigs that, you know, we'll never be anything. We'll never amount to anything. We wasn't going to amount to anything. How did their time there impact their lives as adults? It impacted it in various ways, but I would say every single person we talked to or heard about was drastically, severely impacted by what they went through. I mean, without exception. Some people like Jenny um, and Lonnie, whose voices you just heard, they have extreme, extreme trauma from their experience. I mean, Jenny recalling memories of 50 plus years ago was crying during her interview. These are people who are almost elderly now, and this has haunted them for decades Right. And the school is right outside of Montgomery. You grew up in the South and you'd never heard of this school. And I imagine that's true for a lot of people. How do you think this story has stayed under the radar? I think there are a couple of reasons. The first one is there are a lot of institutions like this. We have a history in this country of sending kids off, shipping kids off to quote-unquote reformatories that are essentially prisons, right? I think another reason it stayed under the radar is because it was, and I think continues to primarily be, an institution for Black kids. And that meant that the ability to share these stories and have people listen or care has historically been pretty limited. It's just, you know, really heavy But as we see, this history has parallels to what we're seeing now and the types of things that, you know, I cover with juvenile justice in Alabama, Mississippi and Louisiana. And as a criminal justice reporter, what are some of the things that come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, look, this is a country that is built on and has a long, unending, relentless history of punishment um, and of cruelty and of state brutality. So On that level, I would say, like, this is a modern-day story, right? I think an important thing to keep in mind also is Mount Max is still open, right? The institution, I think, has changed a lot um, in the past 50 years, for example. But I don't think it's changed entirely. We talked to people who have clients there more recently, and they still see it as a, a place that does the opposite of rehabilitation. You know, we've listened to the first couple episodes of this podcast and you you know you've described pretty well in in this interview the trauma that these folks have endured and for people who are just starting to listen to it 
Can you, you know, talk about the narrative arc a little? Is there some hope in this story? Is there yes. a light yeah. at the end of the tunnel? What I take away from this podcast is not, it's not a feeling of, oh, there's no hope, right? Because look at what these kids went through. It's it's the opposite. It's a feeling of like, these kids went through something really horrific. And they have now as adults, many of them have taken the opposite lesson from that. The pain that they went through is part of the reason that they've tried to show kindness, empathy, and care to others. And it's just a reminder that like, there's potential beyond just the worst, right? There is a sense of people surviving. These are survivors. That was Josie Duffy Rice, host of the podcast, Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. She was talking with the Gulf States Newsroom's Bobby Jean Missick. Coming up, a look at the Laurel Jones Black History Museum. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. This month, the Laurel Jones County Black History Museum and Arts will officially open its doors. It's a passion project of Marion Allen, who serves as the museum's CEO and director. Allen says it took years of planning, and after a soft launch earlier this month, she's looking forward to providing a complete account of black history and culture for anyone who visits. We start the museum in Kemet, which most people call Egypt. But in Kemet, we are displaying King Tut, Nefertiti, Cleopatra, um, the African-American kings and queens of Africa. And then we move to enslavement, enslavement instead of slavery, where we exhibit the transatlantic slave trade. And also inside that exhibit, I'm so uh, thrilled to have some real authentic slave chains to be able to show individuals. And then we come down the hallway where we enter the room called Mammy, where we pay homage to Hattie McDaniel, who was the first black to win an Oscar. And across the hall inside the great room, we pay homage to some of Laurel's greats, such as Lynn King Price, such as her brother, Brigadier General Price, Coach Lee Garner, who was a Harlem Globetrotter, Attorney Otis Booth, who's the assistant DA in Marine, California. We also pay homage to Larry McGill, Coach Larry McGill, who is a Hall of Famer of Mississippi Valley. And, of course, we give homage to Ralph Boston, who was a three-time Olympic champion. And then the rest of the museum pays homage to great people throughout Laurel and Jones County, including most of our civil rights individuals. The artifacts that you have, you mentioned that a man did uh, give you some photos. Are you finding that people are finding things they have in their homes or put away that they're willing to donate to the museum? Yes, and that is a great thing. Once people uh, walked through and saw the vision that I had, it, it sparked their memory. 
about, oh, I have this at home, just like a lady gave me two buttons from uh, when James Meredith integrated uh, Ole Miss. And those buttons just have one simple word on there that just says never. And so when we did the research on that, it indicated that the people were saying he will never integrate Ole Miss. And it was an honor for her to give me those because we're talking about she's had this since the 60s. And so when people come in and see, you know, like, okay, this is what this is all about. Because my children for years have always joked about our house looking like a museum. So that's really what sparked my mind to say, oh, my two children shouldn't be the only children in the world be able to see this. And so now it's on display for all to see. Is this a house with... Uh, rooms upstairs, downstairs. Describe it for us. It's a, it, a two-story uh, home that was built in 1920. And the great story about this house for me is when I was small, my mother and I used to clean this house. Uh, it was an attorney office then. And so uh, downstairs is where the exhibit part will take place. And ultimately, in the future, i like to see the upstairs to house um, the educational part for children to come in and have art classes to come in and learn chess, to come in and have computers and and read. Of course, there's a bank of uh, bookshelves up there, and so I call for people to bring their black uh, literature here to the museum so that we can keep it here so that children can be able to read and about themselves. And it's quite a size home, then. It's not a small building. Oh, no, ma'am, it's not a small building. Uh, and then upstairs, we have uh, six more rooms upstairs, and that's why we hope to turn that into uh, a section for people can have meetings, the arts and craft rooms, and checker game room, and computer site, and then there are also two individual suites where children or adults can just sit and just read, because in front of them, that there's a bank of bookshelves where we will house African-American books and art. Tell us what goes into developing a museum like this? To develop a museum such as this, uh, it's going to take a, a lot of hard work. And uh, you can have a vision, but, you know, you got to have provision. So, therefore, you got to have some funds in order to get this museum up and running. And so it is taking, you know, uh, individuals just volunteering their time. And that's the great thing that I appreciate about getting this museum open because this museum was done by volunteers throughout the community, painting walls, putting down tile, and it just warmed my heart to see people just come forth and say, I'll help you. Will there be an admission fee? We're going to charge uh, an admission fee of just $5, you know, just $5 because we're not – we're here to educate, but if someone does not have the $5, that is not going to prevent you from coming in and seeing the exhibit. How, how are you feeling right about now that you have come this far with this project? I can breathe. I, I feel I can breathe. Like I said, I've been collecting this for, well, all my life. You know, my mom gave me a, a mammy doll years ago. And then as I got older, I, I began to read and find out what, what was the significance of this doll. And then when I read it, and so that just sparked me to go around and collect Mammy memorabilia, go around and collect blackface, tell the story of what that means, 
tell the story of what is lynching. You know, a lot of people, you say lynching to someone that's about 30 or 35 because I'm 56. And they go, what's the lynching, Miss Mary? So, therefore, we're here to educate. And so that makes me feel good that I can just stop and educate a person. And when a person comes into this museum, you'll be able to be educated because not only will you see artifacts, but you'll see books where you can take your phone, take a picture of that book, and then you can go buy that book later for yourself. And we will also have what's called the Black Star Market, where I'm hoping individuals, local artists, local writers, they will bring their books and we can sell them in the bookstore up front. A lot of plans, a lot of things in the works. Yes, yes, yes. I, I'm excited, you know, that we've come this far because the the amount of work that, that we took on, I had a vision that I wanted it to be open the first day of Black History Month. And we did this in record time because that was just six months ago. And we, we walked into a building that had been empty for close to three years. All right, Marion Allen, Executive Director of the Laurel and Jones County New Black History Museum. Thank you so much for your time and speaking with us about this new endeavor. Thank you for having me. God bless. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.